once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this House and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, word of warning. Word of warning, Prime Minister. That's not going to work with the police. <laughs> Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matcher. I'm the deputy political editor at the paper. With me this week, as per usual, are the great and the good in the form of Alistair Grant, our political editor, and Hannah Brown, our political correspondent. Alex Brown is away at Glastonbury, living it up um, in the beautiful, you know, music-surrounded fields of wherever Glastonbury is. Um, <laughs> um, we're all very jealous. Um but uh, we we missed you last week, um, so let's talk a bit about, to get going, um, independence with Nicola Sturgeon launching her independence referendum campaign, Mark II. Um, Alistair, take us through what was said. Nicola Sturgeon obviously launched uh, these, her new independence paper at Butte House. Um, it's the first in a series of papers setting out what she calls the updated case for Kind of independence. So this first paper was a bit of a kind of, I think it was described by the Scottish government themselves as a scene setter. So to be honest, there wasn't really much in it. It was a kind of a, a comparison with the UK and 10 other countries in kind of reasonably close geographic proximity. Um, it's something we've seen before in the Growth Commission that the SP kind of released a few years ago. So it's not a kind of new idea in and of itself, but I suppose it's kind of creating that concept of uh, allowing people to see that, you know, from the SP's point of view, Scotland could be better independent. Uh, and then obviously future papers are going to be kind of diving into those more controversial, controversial issues like currency. Uh, I think probably the biggest one, the border between Scotland and England, I think that could potentially be the biggest issue in any kind of second referendum debate. Um, issues such as, you know, trade, pensions, all those kind of controversial issues coming up. Uh, and on Tuesday, next week, Nicola Sturgeon should be setting out what I think the Scottish government again is referred to as the route map to a second referendum. So essentially, Nicola Sturgeon at her Butte House press conference was saying that um, obviously they want a Section 30 order from the UK government, um, as there was in 2014, so the UK government to hand the powers to you know, Scottish Parliament, the Scottish government to hold a second referendum. But the expectation is that Boris Johnson has no intention of giving that to them. He's got no intention of kind of agreeing to a second referendum. So Nicola Sturgeon was essentially saying that uh, in that circumstance, they may have to find a way to forge ahead without a Section 30 order. Now, it's not clear how they'll do that. It's not clear what the kind of route to that will be. Um, there's a kind of legal debate that I'm sure people listening to this podcast will be aware of that's been kind of in the background of Scottish politics for, for months now, for years actually, um, about whether or not Holyrood has the competence to introduce legislation for a second referendum without, you know, the agreement of the UK government without that Section 30 order. It's a kind of contested issue. But I think, to be honest, I think the 
the kind of general agreement now in legal experts is that if this legislation was introduced to Holyrood and it was challenged in the Supreme Court, the Scottish government is quite likely, likely to, to actually lose that and the UK government would be quite likely to, to win it and that legislation would be struck down. So I think all eyes on that statement on Tuesday, I've got, you know, it's not clear what Nicola Sturgeon is going to announce um, and it's not clear whether she's actually got something else up her sleeve that she can unveil then or if this is just going to be essentially the plan to introduce legislation to Holyrood and try and create a kind of constitutional clash in the courts. Um, but that, yeah, that's essentially where we are. It feels a little bit like we're, we've reached we've reached certainly the defining point of her career, you know, around now, given the fact that you know she she took over from Alex Salmond what um, short very not too long after the defeat in twenty fourteen. She's been building and building up to you know this latest push for for a referendum for certainly since twenty nineteen, arguably since Theresa May turned down requests for a section 30 you know five five or six years ago um and we're at the point now where her political ability to get what she's always wanted and what her supporters always wanted is 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 being tested i mean what what do we think the consequences might be we don't know what's coming out on tuesday obviously but what do we think the consequences for her and for the refer- the independence movement more generally would be if that route map isn't a clear plan on how to get a legally a legal referendum that has some sort of actual political power. Well, I think the, well, I mean, for a start, I don't think there can really be a clear plan as such. It's always going to be quite a kind of convoluted route. Uh, I mean, there was some kind of speculation that they could go down the route of trying to change the wording of the question to kind of dilute it a little bit, uh, and that might make it easier to get the legislation through Holyrood without it being challenged in the courts and struck down. But I think that route creates its own problems, obviously. Um, I think you've got the issue of, I mean, again, this is a contested argument, but if even if this legislation was introduced to Holyrood and upheld in court, you don't know for sure that the unionist parties will play ball with that referendum if, if it's not got the agreement of the UK government. I mean, would the Tories, um, you know, go along with that? Would there be a kind of better together campaign as there was in 2014? Uh, and if there's not, that obviously has an impact on the legitimacy of the result. Um, so I don't, I don't think there can really be a clear plan as such that won't have some kind of contested element to it. Uh, and I think if this announcement on Tuesday is uh, perceived to be a letdown for the independence movement, I mean, you, you, you can obviously expect people like Alex Salmond to come out and condemn the lack of any progress in this. Uh, I think there is a lot of frustration from those more kind of, I don't know what the word would be, those Alaba side of the independence movement, those people that are more kind of want a referendum as soon as possible. And there's a lot of frustration from from their end in this. So I think it it could get quite difficult. I think particularly, and we, we spoke about this before, actually, when we we're talking about Nicola Sturgeon's legacy. Um, and obviously, she has various things that she holds up to be her legacy, things like the expansion of childcare. Um, but the constitution will probably dominate any legacy she has. And I think if she fails to move this debate on, if she fails to kind of secure a referendum or to move the dial on this in any kind of meaningful way, uh, I think it could be, could put her in quite a tricky position. What do you think, Hannah? Yeah, I mean, just to offer, a, I, I guess, a, a different opinion and a, con- a more controversial outlook to, or maybe not controversial, but perhaps a positive outlook to this route map that we're supposedly getting is that even though we've had this argument of kind of 
older kind of Alba or even people who are just more definitive in their need for an independence right now. The the benefit of this route map and the benefit of these plans and this big push for Nicola Sturgeon will be the fact that it will offer new Scots, young people who are maybe not as, I don't know, used to the debate or know the debate as well, an opportunity to see and see this quite clearly outlined all the points for independence. And I think that's what the first, even though it was this scene-setting document, sort of offered people. They were able to see this um, comparison of Scotland with other countries, which I'm going to give you a wee shout-out here in a plug, Connor, something that a podcast you're going to be releasing will focus on. Um, so I think this will be really interesting to people to see this analysis. Obviously, it's from a very one-sided perspective of what independence will do, but not Nonetheless, it shows an argument and it perhaps outlines an argument that maybe some people won't be familiar with. Um, so I guess that is a positive step in the map. But yeah, there there might be, as as Alistair kind of mentioned and um, as you alluded to as well, Connor, there, there might be a few people who are looking at this and going, it's the same old, same old, um, where is solutions, where is something, where is an actual active plan to get us to that 2023 date? It's particularly difficult, isn't it, I think, at the minute for for there to be any certainty around any of this. Um, and I think, I, I, don't, I don't know, it's, if you look at, I was talking to some, some, some parliamentary folk last night, you know, about how the SNP get to where they want to be. And part of their problem is the kind of immovable object of Boris Johnson down south. Now, do, do we think, you know, we'll talk about the by-election results later on, but do we think this would be any easier if there was a Labour government in charge in terms of getting a Section 30, you know, going through the same process that they did in 2012 prior to the 2014 referendum, or you know, have effectively unionist politicians realised that they hold the trump card in just saying no repeatedly? I don't think it'd be any easier. I mean, I think the last thing Keir Starmer would want to do if he won an election and came to power would be to agree to a Section 30 order and cause another referendum to happen. It would just be the last thing in his mind. It's not what he would want. Um, it's opening up a entire can of worms for him. Um, and there's also, I know there is an argument, for example, I think Kenny Farkas in the Times was writing about this recently, that a Labour government would make it more difficult for the SNP in the sense that the Tories are obviously quite a good pantomime villain for them at the moment. Um, so I definitely, I don't think it would be any easier of a Labour government. I think perhaps Jeremy Corbyn, might have agreed to this in some sense. He was always a bit, his message in this was always a bit more clouded. But I think Keir Starmer has been quite clear on it. Uh, and I just don't think he would uh, he would agree to it either. Yeah, I would agree that it's it's harder um, as something that Kenny Ferguson said, uh, purely because of the pantomime villain um, motif. I think, you know, Labour is a unionist party. They're going to stand strong on, on that belief. And I, I don't really see much of that changing with how they... Um, yeah, how they handle independence with what uh, the Scottish government could could pose to them the issue, and yeah, you could argue that sure, uh, conservatives might take a more forthright and you know we're not ha- handling this approach on surface level maybe to the public, but I think what happens behind closed doors would be much the same, and I think you can't you you do think God will with this. Would this come out if it hadn't been? And would there be such a push for independence had it not been for 
what some people might argue to be the complete failures of a Tory government in the UK. It'd be interesting to see what happens. Well, let, let's move on a bit and chat about um, the other story over the last week that's kind of dominated the SNP, which has been their you know, alleged failure to, to deal appropriately with um, complaints of uh, harassment against uh, Patrick Grady. Um, Alistair, would you give us a quick rundown of that? Um, but yeah, to, to give a bit of background on this, obviously Patrick Grady, the SNP MP, was found to have uh, made unwanted sexual advances to an SNP staffer. Um, this was investigated by the House of Commons. Obviously, the, the finding came through. He was suspended for two days and suspended from the SNP for the same length of time. Uh, and then there was essentially a row on the back of this about how the SNP had handled this. And the victim was obviously being very vocal about feeling abandoned by the party, feeling that they didn't handle it well. Um, and then in the media, essentially, it came out that there was a, a leaked recording of an SNP group meeting uh, in which Ian Blackford was heard kind of encouraging MPs to, to kind of show their support for Patrick Grady um, and to kind of back him in that sense. Uh, I think Ian Blackford would argue that you know, this was just a small part of a recording of a wider meeting um, and he's apologised for the kind of distress it caused the victim. But there has been a kind of ongoing row about this. And you're right, there was a, a second uh, separate investigation into the SNP MP Patricia Gibson, which was um, initially upheld and now has been overturned on appeal. It's been thrown out. Uh, I think it sounds like a cynical thing to say, um, but I think if both of those had been upheld, and if it, Ian Blackwood would probably be looking at a more difficult situation in a sense. Um, I know that sounds kind of cynical, but I just think the kind of political handling of that would have been would have been quite difficult for him. Um, but it's been an ongoing row. And I think in the back of this, this dominated FMQs the other day uh, and, and linked to it. Again, there's kind of separate issues up in Scotland with complaints against ministers. So there was allegations that Fergus Ewing had kind of bullied civil servants um, and there was a, an investigation into this by the Scottish government, but we don't know the result of that, um, which seems like a ridiculous situation. Uh, and essentially at FMQs, Nicola Sturgeon was challenged in this by the Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sarwar, and said that it's not a situation she's happy with and that she's going to try and change the ministerial code and the kind of complaints process to allow future investigations, the, the outcome of future investigations to be published. But I think it's still not clear what the legal constraints are in them actually publishing the outcome of these investigations at the moment. Uh, and we had the kind of post-FMQ's briefing with the First Minister's spokesman uh, yesterday on, on Thursday, uh, and he was unable to explain what the legal basis was for the, the current constraint on publishing those outcomes. Uh, he couldn't explain what the what changes will actually be made to the ministerial code when Nicholas Sturgeon became aware that this was a problem. So there's lots and lots of unanswered questions around this. Uh, and I think it just feeds into this so certainly the issue with complaints against ministers feeds into this wider sense of kind of secrecy in the Scottish government and not being entirely transparent. Yeah, we had a story earlier this week that I wrote about the misconduct complaints and how how the public should be able to know about it. And the government claimed that it wasn't in the public interest for, you know, complaints, you know, whether or not they're upheld or not, um, but the results and the outcomes of these complaints to be made public um, based on the argument effectively that it would stop other people coming forward with complaints, um, which seems a bit to me nonsensical because I think, I, I, and, I, and clearly the First Minister has changed her mind on this, you know, uh, helpfully between us publishing the story on Tuesday and FMQs on Thursday morning. Um, now, 
it, it, there's no I, I can't see a legal reason I really can't see a legal reason for why they can't say whether or not Fergus Ewing in particular his the complaints against him have been upheld or not we're not asking I don't think as the media and I know you know Anasawa and, and the Labour Party they're not asking for details here they're not asking for the name of the complainer they're not asking for the you know, details of exactly the sort of behavior that was undertaken, where, when, etc. All they want is whether or not it was upheld and presumably the sanction, if there is one afterwards. That feels demonstrably in the public interest. Nicola Surgeon clearly realizes that the line that they currently hold, which is, we'll just keep tight-lipped on this forever, can't continue. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it'll be very interesting to see going forward what the changes to the ministerial code are, particularly given the fact that we were told only a few weeks ago when Boris Johnson changed the ministerial code that no changes were planned at all um, of the like around the likes of, you know, breaches of the ministerial code like bullying, exactly like happened down south. It'd be interesting to see exactly what they put in and in particular, you know, when they get around to it, telling us what the actual legal constraints are, rather than relying on everyone's favourite, you know, pointless piece of legislation in term damaging piece of legislation for transparency, which is GDPR, um, which is, you know, personally, one of the most overused reasons for keeping information secret across the country. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean, obviously, I'm not a lawyer, but I can't see anything in GDPR that would prevent them from publishing the outcome of an investigation if there's no details in it. Uh, I mean, you can like you say, we're not asking for detailed insights into what happened. You're not asking for the for the identity of the victim. You're just asking for an outcome. Uh, and I think, to be honest, if, if you're Fergus Ewing or, or anyone else facing allegations of this nature and they are not upheld, then you would want that to be made public. So it just seems like a ridiculous situation. And I think the other thing to remember here is that uh, the Scottish government introduced its recent complaints process uh, on the back of the Alex Salmond case, so it's quite it's a recent thing, and it seems like a big hole in that process to have created a situation where the outcomes of those complaints investigations can't be can't be made public. It just seems like a ridiculous situation, and it would be interested to see exactly what legal basis or exactly what the concerns are about publishing those outcomes. Because I think the current situation, where it's just vague references to mm -hmm. privacy concerns and legal issues, is just not it's not good enough. What what it seems to be that they're they're relying on heavily at the minute is the uh, this idea of confidentiality. Now, anyone listening will understand the the you know the broad meaning of what you know confidentiality means. And um, but under freedom of information law, you know confidentiality has a very specific application. It is just on you know whether or not something is an actionable breach of confidence if that information got out into the public. Now that would require there being an agreement between the government and the complainant of some sort where if they said anything of any note on Fergus Ewing, um, that complainant could come and sue the government. Now, I don't think that's remotely believable. I don't think that's credible. I don't think that's a, a legitimate reason. Um, if it is, I'll happily eat my proverbial hat. But if if that's the, the sort of thing they've agreeing, that's no different to the end, you know, non-disclosure agreements that the SNP are so happy to criticise elsewhere in the country. Um, and it'd be fascinating to see exactly what they do. Um, my worry is that we've just hit recess. We might not hear about this for a long time. 
Well, I think also something that was that was pointed out as well in FMQs uh, that Sturgeon was saying was, and and something that Anna Sarwar pointed out as well was rather conveniently all of this is going cannot be applied retrospectively, um, which really does suit their narrative at the moment. And something I think that we can't forget is that. It's all this language of moving forward and in the future. Well, what about things that are happening at the moment and processes that are going on right now? That that would be very frustrating for loads of people. It's all very well to make these promises now, but if we can't see action and resolutions to handling of sexual misconduct cases, then or or bullying cases as well, like what what what? what hope is there i mean that's people want to see urgent action and i i feel and this has been brought up so much so maybe i'm just repeating an, a news line or a, an analytical line that we've heard so much but the smp are really towing a dangerous line of really supporting or seeming to be supporting the perpetrator rather than the victim um, and that totally goes against all the promises that we've heard from the SNP saying that they want to stamp out any sort of sexual harassment in um, Parliament. We've see, even seen that with Angela Rayner, you know, the, the that kind of uh, stuff that was happening in Westminster. The, the SNP were so vocal about that and saying how awful that was and a, a real crime against misogyny. It's all very, it's all very well to say these things but if you can't actually enact that in your party um, there's no point in being holier than thou when there are clear problems in the party and I know that the first minister mentioned well it's a systemic issue in society everyone is uh, subjected to these sexual har- it, it shouldn't be the case but everyone has issues of sexual harassment it's a cross-party issue I don't think that quite cuts it for people who are listening to that and thinking, oh, you're the people in government. You should be setting a standard. You should be setting the tone. Um, And I feel like a lot of people will be let down by that. And even people who are maybe sexual assault survivors, even sexual harassment, people who've gone through sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, all all of that will be um, really disheartening for them to see that urgent action isn't taken now. It is truly, truly pathetic and incredibly weak for Nicola Sturgeon to stand up at FMQs and say, you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I mean, just because I I said this yesterday on Twitter, but like just because nobody owns the moral high ground doesn't make your own response to the problem acceptable. It's just it's and I think I think as well, it's this natural SNP reflex, which we see a lot throughout their kind of political um, responses to events, you know, their re- their reflex is to go, but but Westminster, or you know, like let's look at Westminster, compare ourselves, you know, well in comparison to to Westminster, um, and they're doing that this time. Just usually, they're trying to say that we're better this time. They're going, oh, we're just the same, so it's fine then. Um, and it's it's I I, th- I think it was one of her weakest. Uh, lines yesterday. Um, I don't. I don't think you can legitimately claim to be stamping down on anything if you are minimising it by saying everyone faces that problem. I mean, everyone faces climate change. It doesn't mean that that's any less of a big problem for everyone. I mean, it's a. It's a complete 
It's a really weak statement, I I thought. Maybe I'm just hard of hearing, but I also thought the First Minister's questions this week took a very hushed and solemn tone, so it was really hard to hear. Maybe it's just me, but as a result, I do feel like it was kind of a tactic to maybe sound more serious and uh, have that kind of gravity about you. But also there is this element of, well, maybe the First Minister isn't proud of her party and what they've done. I mean, she already mentioned that the leaked audio recording was totally unacceptable. Uh, But yet again, is defending Ian Blackford and says that she has confidence in him after uh, the victim basically said that he felt ambushed by Ian Blackford, who called him and Patrick Grady into the into the room with each other so yeah I I mean it's it's such a it's such a difficult line to say that you are 100% no tolerance zero tolerance of um sexual misconduct when you you support people who have clearly uh yeah potentially made a victim feel incredibly uncomfortable incredibly unstable in, in their position in the party uh, and also someone that's young and vulnerable um, and has been taken advantage of potentially. Absolutely. Well, let, let's let's move on to another Westminster story, um, which was breaking this morning, which is the results of uh, two by-elections. Um, Boris Johnson is away, um, depending on who you listen to, either um, doing very statesman-like things um, at the uh, meeting of the Commonwealth leaders in Rwanda or hiding um, at the meeting of the Commonwealth leaders in Rwanda um, amidst all of the policy issues there. Um, but there was two by-elections yesterday. Results came in early this morning um, and they were overwhelmingly terrible for the Prime Minister and for the Conservatives. Um, the Conservatives managed to lose Wakefield, which was uh, turned blue for the first time in nearly 90 years at 2019, one of those red wall seats that um, Boris Johnson you know, claims he's the only person who can win them regularly for the Tories. Um, that went to Labour um, by about a swing of, I think, about 12, 12.7%, something around there. Um, and then Tiverton and Honiton, which is where my great aunt lives, um, <laughs> went from, had the, one of the biggest swings in by-election history, a swing of 30%. And the Lib Dems overturning a two twenty four thousand vote majority to win that off the Tories. Um, this is a demonstration, isn't it, of the electoral pincer movement that a lot of MPs, particularly Tory MPs, will be looking at and going, "Holy swear word, we're in deep swear word." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think pincer movement's a good way to describe it. You've got that threat from Labour and the Liberal Democrats. It's basically the worst nightmare for a lot of these Tory MPs. Um, and obviously we had this morning as well breaking that the Conservative co-chair Oliver Dowden has now resigned. Um, so yeah, this is basically the worst case scenario for them in terms of these by-elections. Uh, and I think obviously Boris Johnson has faced a lot of criticism in, in recent times uh, on the back of Partygate. And one of the things that people always said, his backers always said, was that, you know, he might not be perfect, but he's he's a winner. He's someone who wins elections. He's a good campaigner. He's popular with large sections of the country. And I think if Boris Johnson can't win anymore and the Tories are losing by elections on the on the scale in which they, they have done with these two, uh, Tory MPs up and down the country will now be extremely worried. Uh, I mean, essentially winning elections is what they need to do. And he's on the evidence of this, no longer capable of doing that. 
Uh, I think Keir Starmer this morning will be extremely happy as well. Uh, and obviously, we're in Scotland, so the other aspect of this is the Scottish Tories, who obviously do not, for the large part, want Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister, to be in his role. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting to see what Douglas Ross says in the back of this. Uh, and they'll be worried for their seats as well. So yeah, this is a, a nightmarish scenario for the Tories. It kind of sets them up for um, the worst of all worlds, doesn't it, uh, in in the next election, which we are assuming is going to take place as planned in 2024. But, you know, there's, there's rumours swirling, I think, about a potential snap election, which feels like a complete piece of political suicide if that happened. But um, it puts them puts Tories in the position of losing all of those seats that they won off Labour in 2019, losing their traditional heartlands. And critically, if Labour and the Lib Dems join forces in this in a, in a type of you know left alliance, if you like, um, they could lose seats that are considered incredibly safe just by one of those two parties standing down. And in Scotland, you know, if Labour stand aside for the SNP, which I don't think is likely, you know, but could you could have that in places where the Tories that you know have seats in the northeast and in the borders. Um, they could be wiped out in Scotland as well. I mean, it's. I don't know how Boris Johnson comes back from this. Personally, I, I think he's he's a dead man walking. Mm. I think also, I I totally think that the Tories in Scotland will be worried about their own their own seats. But I, I mean, I, maybe this will be dealt with in a kind of Hannah, don't be so silly. But maybe there's a there's a sense of I guess joy a wee bit from Douglas Ross here because it shows, and this might be controversial, but this shows that Boris Johnson has vastly impacted, although people have said cost of living, but it's under ultimately under Boris Johnson's watch um, and with Partygate as well, that Boris Johnson has caused this. So maybe a wee bit of Douglas Ross is going told you so and is going you know I I have voted no confidence this is what we heard from Andrew Bowie um it's Friday today so he was on GMS um on BBC's Good Morning Scotland basically saying that you know this is a difficult day for the Scottish Tories but I would just like to reiterate like I voted uh no confidence for Boris Johnson which I thought was really interesting so they're starting maybe we can see from the Scottish Tory this dialogue of bringing in well we voted no confidence um, so you know this is this is what we've done and th- this is a different demographic down there from the UK I think they'll be really keen to emphasise that that we are different from the UK Tories we're different from Boris Johnson's law um, and something that I kind of brought up when we saw uh, the vote of no confidence and just how damaging um, it was for Boris Johnson despite essentially getting through through the skin of his teeth it was still really really bad for him um and something that i mentioned at the time was well it'll be really hard for douglas ross to go round the doors of scotland and say in another election vote for boris johnson someone who i can't even back so maybe he's hoping that the 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 result in the uk the result will in these by-elections might stand him a wee bit apart from johnson but i don't know if that's too tenuous a thing to to claim Alistair, what do you think? I mean, I think there. I think Hannah's right. There might be a, a small, a very, very small part of Douglas Ross that's kind of enjoying the fact that, you know, as far as he's concerned, he's called for Boris Johnson to go. He obviously voted that way in the confidence vote. And now Boris Johnson appears to be causing damage to 
the Tories electorally. So he's kind of been proven right in that sense. Um, but I think the greater part will just be extremely worried about the prospects of their party. And yeah, I, I think you're right, I, Connor, in the sense that he seems like a dead man walking now. Uh, I mean, the Tories, I don't know how true it is, but there is sometimes a perception that they're quite kind of brutal with their leaders. They are quite happy to get rid of them, rid of them if they're not performing anymore. Um, so I think, yeah, the next the next few days, next few weeks will be extremely interesting to see what happens next uh, and whether people will put up with this in a sense. Particularly, isn't it, um, given the fact that I think it was un- under Theresa May, she she obviously had the, succeeded in a vote of no confidence, um, defeated internal rebels, um, and then six months later was gone, partially due to the fact that um, the 1922 committee was due to change the rules, had voted on changing the rules um, of the vote no confidence to we can hold it, hold one whenever we like, which would have likely seen her go. Um, it is likely, I would imagine, that those sorts of conversations are ongoing now. You know, only, what, a month ago, less than a month ago, we had 148 Tory MPs say they had no confidence in Boris Johnson. Um, Oliver Dowden's the first cabinet minister to say that he thinks someone has to take the blame that he can't stay in post. That suggests there's 149 MPs, you know, with no confidence in Boris Johnson. Um, at some point, there's going to become, you know, a point of no return. It, it, it feels like a when rather than an if. So thank you very much for listening to the Steamy this week. A quick note that Uh, We will shortly be releasing a brand new podcast. It's called How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices. It's a podcast uh, produced by myself um, on uh, what other countries have done when they've experienced independence. Um, It won't try to change your mind um, on whether or not you are a yes or a no voter, but instead we'll look at what lessons we can learn as Scotland from other countries' experiences of independence. Um, That podcast's trailer is out now you can go and have a listen um, and it will also be out with the first episode in around mid-July. So please do keep an eye out for that. And thank you very much for listening. Hannah, Alistair, thank you very much for joining us. The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman. And once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this house and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Uh, Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, Word of warning. Word of warning, Prime Minister. That's not going to work with the police. (laughs) Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions just once. Just once it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.